Well, good morning, everyone. We'll start with our Sunday school lesson now. If you would uh, take a seat, if you haven't gotten an outline yet, they are back in their usual place, so you can follow along. We're continuing. This is our last lesson in the order of salvation, and we'll cover perseverance and glorification today. Uh, before we start, let's begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for not only revealing to us your salvation, but revealing to us how you have saved us, in what order and in what acts you have saved us, so that we might have a greater appreciation and understanding for what Christ has done and for what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts and minds to, uh, to reconcile us to you and to bring us forgiveness of sins and to sanctify us. So we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, increase our understanding of these things so that we might glorify you and uh, live according to what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like we did last week, we're going to do a quick pop quiz, and I'm going to word it a little bit differently. So I'm going to ask you, um, is this something that God does or something that we do? Um, and I'm going to list these different aspects of the order of salvation. So first, effectual calling. God does or we do? Effectual. God does, effectual calling, that's right. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says effectual calling is the work of God's spirit. Uh, so that's pretty clear. So effectual calling and then faith is next. Is that something that God does or we do? We do, that's right. So effectual calling is what gives us faith, but we are the ones who actually believe. We're the subject of the sentence when we say uh, something believes in Jesus. It's us, we believe in Jesus. Uh, so we have faith, but it is a gift of God. It's something that he enables. And then justification. God does or we do? God does justification, absolutely. That is um, different than certain uh, other Christian faiths, um, especially Roman Catholicism. Justification is something that God does. He declares us righteous. Then next is adoption. God does or we do? God does adoption, that's right. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. Next is sanctification. God does or we do? I'm hearing some mixed answers. That's a pretty good way to say it. I'm saying it's something that God does, and that's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism as well. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Sanctifi uh, that's Westminster Shorter Catechism, I believe, 33. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's something that God does, but it's something that God does, and it produces our works. So it's a work of God that produces our works, um, and it produces our works that even further our sanctification. So it's kind of a almost a circle, but it's something that God does to produce our good works. And then perseverance, God does or we do? That's a good way to say it. Some mixed answers, but I'm saying perseverance is something that we do, and we'll get into this later. We persevere, God preserves. Somebody said that in the audience. Very good. Uh, so yeah, we persevere. When we're talking about perseverance of the saints, that means that it's us who persevere. Um, it, is, it is God enabled, it is a gift of God, but it, we are the ones who actually do the persevering. Then last, glorification, God does or we do? God glorifies, of course. So hopefully it gives you a picture of what this order of salvation looks like, and you can see something here, and I think it's actually kind of compelling, is that effectual calling starts it and then comes faith, and faith 
is the fruit of effectual calling. Uh, effectual calling is a transform transformative work of the Holy Spirit, and it produces faith so that we might be justified. And then sanctification is also a transformative work of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a work in which we are renewed after uh, the image of God. Sanctification is a work of God's Spirit, transformative, and it produces perseverance. So the fruit of sanctification is perseverance because sanctification isn't just the process of doing a good work here or there, maybe two or three good works in your lifetime. It's a process of being transformed so that you persevere in good works and faith. Um, so that's just a quick overview, and now we'll get into perseverance. So first, defining perseverance. We see this Westminster Larger Catechism question, 79, um, at the start of your outline. May not true believers, by reason of their imperfections and the many temptations and sins they are overtaken with, fall away from the state of grace? So may believers fall away from the state of grace? And of course, the answer, true believers, by reason of the unchangeable love of God and his decree and covenant to give them perseverance, their inseparable union with Christ, his continual intercession for them, and the spirit and seed of God abiding in them can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And so the answer is true believers can never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. Um, and so that is what we're talking about when we're talking about perseverance. And now let's break that down a little bit. First, the title, the, the label, perseverance. The title given to this doctrine shows its emphasis. It's not just that believers can never lose their salvation, but it's that believers can never fall away from the faith. The question is not just, can a regenerate person uh, lose their justification or something like that? Rather, the question is even, can a regenerate person apostatize or walk away? Not just that we can never lose our righteous standing before God, but that we can never even walk away from God. We can never lose our status as saints or even walk out of the process of becoming more holy. Uh, we can see this in 1 Peter 1.10. After listing some uh, virtues and qualities that he was encouraging his readers to pursue, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about never falling. And that's what perseverance is. And then the end, the last part of the, the label that we usually give this, perseverance of the saints. And so this last part, of the saints. In our experience, we see many professing Christians who fall away. Many people who say they're Christians, who believe in the gospel and Jesus, and they walk away from the faith. And so the question arises, who perseveres? Because those people clearly did not persevere from our perspective. Um, and it would seem like from our perspective that they were, they were believers. And so who perseveres? And the remainder of the title gives the answer, perseverance of the saints. It is the saints who persevere. And Westminster Confession of Faith 17.1 uh, clarifies who the saints are. The saints are they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit. So, if God has accepted you in justification and adoption, if he has effectually called you by his spirit and is sanctifying you by his spirit, then you are a saint who will persevere. 
Those saints who have been elected, called, have trusted in Christ, have been justified and adopted, are being sanctified, they will persevere and be glorified. So if you're on this trajectory of the order of salvation, then you will persevere. But there are, of course, members of the church who are not saints in this sense. There are members of the church who are not, who have not been effectually called, who have not been justified, etc. And so they are not saints in this sense of, of elect saints. They are outwardly saints. And, and so we need to keep in mind our distinction between the visible and the invisible church when we're talking about perseverance. There, the invisible church consists of the number of elect saints. So anybody who God has chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved, those are members of the invisible church, and they will be called, justified, uh, sanctified, glorified. We see that in Romans 8.30. Those whom God has predestined, God also called, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. This is the invisible church, but the visible church consists of all who profess faith in Christ and their children. And so when we're talking about membership in the visible church, we don't try to judge somebody's election. We don't try to judge somebody's uh, conversion experience or their uh, evidence of regeneration. All we judge is their profession of faith. If they say, I believe in Jesus, and they can explain what that means, explain what the gospel means, and why they trust in Jesus for their salvation, then we accept them as a member of the visible church. That does not mean necessarily that they are a member of the invisible church, but we trust that they are. We assume that they are. And this means that the visible church is a mixed company. It's made up of the elect who will persevere, those who genuinely believe in Christ, but it's also made up of hypocrites who profess faith but are not elect and who do not have true and saving faith. Jesus describes this in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, in the parable of the weeds. In this parable, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while, servants were but while his servants were asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the field. And so weeds were growing alongside the good seed. And the servants ask uh, the master, should we pull up the weeds? And the master says, no, lest you also pull up the wheat along with the weeds. And so the church is like this field. It's made up of the elect, which is like the wheat in the parable, and the hypocrites, who are like the weeds in the parable. And when we're talking about perseverance, perseverance does not apply to the weeds. It does not apply to the hypocrites. They may fall away. But the wheat, those elect saints, will persevere in the faith. So we need to keep this uh, visible, invisible church distinction in mind when we're talking about perseverance. Next, the victory of perseverance. And this is helpful when we're talking about those saints who will persevere, those whom God has elected to be glorified, those who will persevere. What does perseverance mean? Um, does it mean that they can never sin? Does it mean that they can never fall into temptation? And I think Westminster uh, Confession of Faith 17 explains this really well. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and eternally be saved. So you can never finally nor totally fall away. That's what perseverance means. Perseverance doesn't mean that the Christian life is, e it, it, is easy. It doesn't mean that 
Genuine believers won't struggle with temptation or even stumble into grievous sins. We see this in Westminster Confession 17, section 3. It says, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world and the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their, of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts and have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. That's a pretty serious uh, list of things that could happen to people who are truly saints, who are, who are elect saints, and who have, been, who have been given this promise of perseverance. We can fall into grievous sins and for a time continue in that and, and, and take on God's fatherly displeasure. We can hurt and scandalize others. We can bring temporal judgments upon ourselves. So it doesn't mean, perseverance does not mean that the Christian life is easy and that we won't ever stumble or sin. Instead, perseverance means that true believers will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace in Christ. Though they struggle with temptation and maybe even succumb to it, they will repent and turn away from their sins, even if it takes many years for them to come to repentance. Though they struggle with temptation, Christians will persevere in the end uh, through many trials, tribulations, and failures, and they will be eternally saved, as the confession says. And so this doesn't mean that your eternal salvation depends on your perseverance. Rather, your eternal salvation was determined unchangeably in your justification. But everyone who is justified by faith alone is also sanctified, and the fruit of sanctification is perseverance unto salvation. So if you have been justified, you will persevere, but that doesn't mean your perseverance causes your standing before God. Our end is already secure in our justification, but so is the time between now and our end. And that's what perseverance says. And so the necessity. Why is perseverance necessary? Why is it true that those who are justified will persevere? As I've said in weeks past, the unity of salvation establishes the, nece the necessity of perseverance, the unity of salvation. If somebody could be justified and then walk away from the faith uh, and lose their salvation, then the unity of salvation would be destroyed. God's purpose would be thwarted if that could happen. God didn't simply elect his saints to have faith for a few minutes or a few years God elected his saints to fill the new creation in their glorified states. He had the end in mind when he elected us. And so if God elects a person, that person will be in heaven. They can't do anything to change that, and they wouldn't want to do anything to change that. Every step in the order of salvation from effectual calling to perseverance is, uh, flows out of election and is a step in order to get to glorification. The whole of the order of salvation has glorification in mind, and it is founded upon election. And so that's why perseverance is necessary. It comes from God's eternal decree that we will be saved, and not only that, but his eternal decree that we will be glorified. And so we can't just jump out of the middle of the process. And so we must be able to persevere, and that's what perseverance says. We can't jump out of the middle of the order of salvation. 
That's the necessity. Now the ground. Why is it true that we are able to persevere? Is it our own strength? Is it our own will? Um, of course, this is not true. The ground of our perseverance, what it's based on, what it's founded on, is not our own strength, not our free will, or anything good or acceptable in ourselves. Rather, it depends completely on God. This is what Westminster Confession 17.2 says. This perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from his free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy and the merit of the intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. And so this is where the doctrine of preservation comes in. That was mentioned earlier, preservation. We persevere because God preserves us. Because of God's faithfulness, not because of our faithfulness, we persevere because of God's faithfulness to us. And this means we don't have to have anxiety about whether we will fall away. We don't have to worry whether we are the true elect that will persevere. We can have faith and trust in God because he has promised that he will preserve us. We have assurance of our perseverance because it rests on the unchangeable love of the Father, the effective merit inter and intercession of Jesus Christ, and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and his work of regeneration. That's what we saw in section two of Westminster Confession 17. And this is beautifully Trinitarian. Can't you see that? It's beautifully Trinitarian. It's based on the love of the Father, the work of Jesus Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why we can persevere. And that means that ultimately our perseverance is grounded in the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is that eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in which the Father promised to give the Son the elect saints as his people. The Son promised to do everything necessary to redeem them. And the Spirit promised to bring the Son's redemption to completion by applying it to the elect saints. And so our perseverance is based in God's eternal covenant, his eternal love, his eternal decree of election. That's why we can persevere. And that should give us great assurance and confidence. And so now biblical evidence for the doctrine of perseverance. Biblical evidence. We see this in John 6. Uh, in verses 33 and uh, 39 and 44. This is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is not only saying that God elects those who come to Jesus, but also that Jesus will never lose those who come to him. Though all of those who the Father has given to the Son, the Son will never lose. And that means all those that the Father has elected to salvation will never be lost by Jesus. And again, those, whom comes to, those who come to the Father because the Father draws them to Jesus, those who come to Jesus because the Father draws him to Jesus will be raised up on the last day. That's what verse 44 says. You will be resurrected if you come to Jesus because you've been drawn by the Father. Uh, also John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's why we can persevere 
No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And of course, the day of Jesus Christ is when he returns, his second advent. And if, uh, if it's his second advent, that means that we will persevere unto that day. We will persevere to the day of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And this means that the work of regeneration or effectual calling in which the Holy Spirit transforms us initially and continues to indwell us, the work of regeneration means that we will put sin to death, that we will repent from our sin and not make a practice of falling into the same sins. But the Spirit will work in our hearts to change that. John 17, 11, this is Jesus in the high priestly prayer the night before he was betrayed. And he's praying not only for his disciples that were with him, but he's praying for us. He says, I pray for those who would believe through these, these disciples. And he prays for us and says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He prays for our perseverance. Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That means that Jesus continues to pray for us. He continues to intercede on our behalf so that we might persevere. In Jeremiah 32.40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And so Jeremiah 32, 40 shows us that our perseverance is grounded in the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is that covenant that Jesus says um, he established in his blood, the new covenant. I'll make with them an everlasting covenant so that they may not turn from me. So the reason why we don't turn from God is, is based in his covenant with us, his covenant of grace. So that's the biblical evidence. And now just answering some questions that we might have about it, the failure of perseverance. What do we say about apostasy? What do we say about other people that we see falling away? Despite all this biblical evidence for the doctrine of perseverance, our experience often contradicts this doctrine. We see people fall away from faith all the time, even those who seem so genuine and even seem indistinguishable from any other believer. And so how do we make sense of our experience of seeing people apostatize in light of this biblical evidence for the promise of perseverance? Well, remember that the victory of perseverance is that the saints will never totally nor finally fall away. And this means that some may partially and temporarily stumble into sins. Just because a person walks away does not prove that they are not an elect saint. We can't ever say, this, is, this person is elect, this person is not elect. That is only known by God. And that means that friends and family who are straying from the faith or those who have been even put under church discipline and been excommunicated even, they've been taken off the rolls of the church, even those kinds of people are not too far gone. We always want to bring them to repentance and restoration. We always want to reach out to them and say, you need to repent from your sin. And it's possible that that happens it's not very common, but it's possible. I've heard stories of, of even pastors who have fallen into horrible sins, and then years later, some 20 years later, they come back to the church and are restored, and they repent. And so that's possible. 
It's not true that if somebody walks away, they've proven that they're not elect. They're just acting like an unbeliever, and so we need to treat them like an unbeliever in that we're calling them to repentance and faith. That's how we treat an unbeliever. We call them to repentance and faith. And so, I've already mentioned that the visible church consists of wheat and weeds, elect saints and hypocrites who profess faith. And hypocrites who profess faith are those who can totally and finally fall away. And so when we see somebody completely apostatize, they never come back, maybe they pass away in their unbelief, they have shown that they are the wheat, or rather the weeds of the field. They were, uh, at least according, according to what we know, we never know, you know, maybe they converted in their deathbed, but according to what we know of them, they have proven that they were not of the invisible church. If they totally and finally fall away, if they die in their sin and unbelief, they never repent. We see this from 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. He's talking about a heretical, a heretical group in the first century. And uh, he's saying that if they were of the true believers, then they would not have done what they did. They would have not have apostatized and fallen after this uh, false teaching. And in the context of perseverance in the order of salvation, perseverance is founded upon all preceding blessings, especially sanctification, and glorification is founded upon perseverance. We can see this last point in Matthew 10, 22, where Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end, that's perseverance, will be saved, that's glorification. And so glorification is founded upon perseverance. Uh, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you, that's sanctification, or even effectual calling, will bring it to completion, that's glorification. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This passage contains so much... Uh, so much depth that we could bring out from the order of salvation. We see calling in there. You were called through our gospel. We see glory to, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's glorification. And of course, we see sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. But at the end there, we see a, a call to stand firm and hold to the traditions, and that is perseverance. And so perseverance uh, comes last. It's founded upon our hope and glorification, it's founded upon our faith, it's founded upon our sanctification, our calling. That's what we see in Second Thessalonians 2. And so now, uh, to finish our section on perseverance, where we'll cover different views and then distinguishing perseverance from other uh, doctrines or other concepts. First, First, different views. It's kind of a short section. Basically, Rome, <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church, any Armenian um, 
tradition, like the Wesleyans, Methodists, uh, they don't have a doctrine of perseverance. They say that you can fall away. Uh, anybody who has been, uh, who has put faith in Jesus, even if it's true and saving faith, even if they've been justified in, in some of the Armenian uh, ways of talking about it, even if they're being sanctified, you can still fall away, according to Roman Catholics and Armenians. Of course, they have different concepts of these doctrines, but basically they don't have a doctrine of perseverance. Uh, the Lutheran churches, um, it, it, it's kind of confusing, Lutheran theology, in some ways they're very close to Reformed theology, in other ways we just kind of scratch our heads when we read what they're saying. But they basically say that there is perseverance of the saints, but they can also fall away, which sounds contradictory, and they would say yes, and we would say, but how do you reconcile those two things? And they say, you're being a rationalist. And that's, that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, Michael Horton calls Lutheran theology inconsistent monergism. That's in his um, uh, Christian faith, his big systematic theology. He calls Lutheran theology inconsistent monergism. And by this he means Lutherans agree with the Reformed that salvation is a work of God alone. It's something that God, it depends on God alone. And that saints will persevere by God's grace. But then Lutherans go on to say that even the elect can lose their salvation temporarily and that true believers who were regenerated and justified can totally and finally fall away. So it's inconsistent. They claim to be monergistic, that, the salvation, that salvation is a work of God, but then they say that people can resist and lose salvation. And there's a lot of reasons why they do this. I could... I could get into this for a bit, but it kind of comes out of their doctrine of the Lord's Supper. They say that anybody who takes the Lord's Supper has actually fed upon Christ, even unbelievers, because they believe that Christ is in, with, and under the, the bread and the wine. And so if everybody takes it, then everybody receives the grace, and so that means that those who fall away but yet have taken the Lord's Supper have actually fallen away uh, from the faith. They have believed and then lost their faith. So they're inconsistent monergists. They believe that salvation is a work of God and yet that we can resist it and that we can lose it. That's what Lutheran theology says. And so basically what it comes down to is the whole non-reformed world doesn't have a doctrine of perseverance in this way. There's no doctrine of perseverance in Rome, in uh, Methodism, in Lutheranism, in some forms of Anglicanism. Some forms of Anglicanism are actually Reformed, uh, but other forms of Anglicanism are uh, more Roman Catholic. Their theology... Federal vision does not have a doctrine of perseverance. They, they have a very similar view of the sacraments. They say that if you've been baptized, you've essentially been regenerated. And so we see people who have been baptized and yet fall away, and so that means they've actually lost their salvation. <clears throat> Federal vision as well, thank you. Um, and so the whole non-reformed world doesn't have this doctrine. That's why it's so precious to us who are reformed, this doctrine of perseverance. Okay, now distinguishing perseverance. Uh, first, from eternal security. And technically there's nothing wrong with the phrase eternal security, it's, it's fine. Our salvation is eternally secure, especially when we have in mind God's eternal decree of election. But often this phrase is used interchangeably with something like once saved, always saved, to mean that once a person professes faith in Jesus, then it doesn't matter what you do after that. It's kind of like this antinomian view of security. 
Some even say that if, even if you apostatize, even if you reject Christ after believing, or you are what they call a carnal Christian, which means you aren't being sanctified at all, you're living in complete sin, someday even if you do that, you will be in heaven because you prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus. That's what some people mean by eternal security. And, and if, if we're talking about that concept of eternal security, then we have to reject that. That has nothing in common with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints because it's miss, missing any notion of perseverance, right? There's no perseverance in this idea of eternal security. John Murray says in Redemption Accomplished and Applied on pages 154 to 55, the doctrine of perseverance is the doctrine that believers persevere. It's not at all that they will be saved irrespective of their perseverance or their continuance, but that they will assuredly persevere. Consequently, the security that is theirs is inseparable from their perseverance. So any doctrine that is talking about security or, um, uh, or even assurance that doesn't have a doctrine of believers actually persevering in the faith that is not something that would uh, cohere with the Reformed doctrine of perseverance. Next, distinguishing perseverance from preservation. Some theologians uh, want to only speak of preservation instead of speaking of preservation and perseverance. But a doctrine of preservation without perseverance loses the emphasis of perseverance and can come to a similar conclusion as eternal security if it's taken too far. And so the emphasis of this doctrine of perseverance isn't just about assurance of salvation or, or comfort or something like that. It's about persisting in the faith and never totally or finally falling away. That's the emphasis of perseverance. And so we must talk about preservation. We must talk about God preserving us and keeping us in the faith. But we must also talk about the perseverance of the saints. And we must get the relationship between those two things right as well. The saints persevere because God preserves. And so we must have both of those things. We can't have just preservation or just perseverance. We must have both. Okay, moving on to glorification. I'll take questions at the end if I have time. We'll see. I might not. Uh, glorification. The label glorification, uh, glorification means to be glorified, right? Uh, it means to be made glorious. And when we are made glorious, humans are made glorious when we enter into the state that we were originally created for. Uh, God created human beings in his image. The fall into sin fatally marred the image of God. And then redemption is the process of God restoring the image of God in his elect saints for God's glory. Sanctification, um, we, we say in Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, I think 33, sanctification is the work of God's grace, uh, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And so in sanctification, we are being renewed after the image of God. We are being, being made into the kind of people that God has created us to be. And this process comes to a completion in glorification. Remember, I, I, um, I think I said this last week when I was talking about sanctification. Entire sanctification does not happen until glorification. Our, our being made perfect in holiness does not happen until glorification. Uh, and glorification refers especially to our resurrection. When we are resurrected, we will enter into the glorious reality that God always intended for humans. 
Glorification is God's final act of rescuing us from sins and the effect of sin. And the greatest effect of sin is death. So glorification concerns the defeat of death, especially. Glorification um, especially refers to the resurrection then, but the intermediate state isn't completely unrelated. Um, so we're going to talk about the intermediate state as well, what happens in between our death and our resurrection. We can see some verses that support uh, glorification are being made glorious. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And really quickly, the context of glorification in the order of salvation. Of course, it's last. Glorification comes last, and so it is founded upon all preceding blessings, upon effectual calling, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance. Glorification is founded upon all of those, and it is the culmination, the ultimate goal of all of redemption. We can see this in Romans 8.30. Those whom God predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So, the intermediate state. We can see this in Westminster Confession, or Westminster Shorter Catechism 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So this is what we would call the intermediate state. This is what happens in between our death and Christ's return. And we can see three main blessings. Uh, one is kind of implied in this question, freedom from the body of sin and death. And this means freedom from our physical bodies, which are uh, marred by sin. We, you know, so much of our sins come from just our physical bodies. Um, in, the, in the way that they are now. Not to say that our physical bodies are bad, but to say that our fallen bodies are bad. Not, yeah, they're sinful. Sinful and they die. Um, and they, of course, we will get resurrected, glorified bodies. Uh, but we're free from this body of sin and death. Uh, we're completely transformed morally. In other words, we're made perfect in holiness. We have entire sanctification. We're free from all sins, and we are able to completely do what is right. And then last, we're welcomed into heaven. Uh, we're made into, uh, welcomed into the presence of Christ, his saints, and his angels. Uh, that's passing immediately into glory. We're welcomed into heaven. And um, some biblical evidence for the intermediate state. Uh, and this will, keep, keep this in mind, because we're going to talk about some other views, hopefully. Uh, and these verses will be relevant there. So some biblical evidence. Philippians 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My, de my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And so he's saying when he dies, he will depart and be with Christ. Hebrews 12, 23, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and then a few verses later, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, that is where the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. 2 Corinthians 5, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so that verse tells us when we are away from our bodies, we will be at home with the Lord in heaven. 
Luke 23, 43, Jesus tells the crucified thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Revelation 14, 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And so this shows us that the intermediate state is a blessing for believers. It is a place where we will be free from sin, we will be made perfect in holiness, we will be in Christ's presence, we will be in the presence of the saints and angels, but it is not our final state. We are body and soul, and we are meant to have bodies. And so this state is in some way incomplete because we are disembodied. We don't have bodies in the intermediate state. And so that's where the resurrection comes in, the resurrection. Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism 38, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And so we see three blessings. We're raised in glory, we're openly acknowledged and acquitted, and we're made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God. And some biblical evidence for these three things. Daniel 12:2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. John 5, 28, 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And so that's that first blessing, raised in glory. Matthew 25, 34 to 35, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me food, etc. So that's being openly acknowledged and acquitted. We're openly acknowledged for our good works. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we shall be forever with the Lord. That's the uh, last blessing. We will, be, we will fully enjoy God forever. We shall be forever with the Lord. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So that's, of course, the last blessing of fully enjoying God. That's some biblical evidence, and now just really quickly, some different views. We have three different views, purgatory, soul sleep, and reincarnation. Uh, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that all or most Christians go to purgatory to finish being cleansed from their sins and to suffer temporal punishment for venial sins. Purgatory is built on the distinction between mortal and venial sins. Mortal sins deserve eternal punishment, venial sins deserve temporal punishment. So Jesus dealt with the mortal sins, and we still have to deal with the venial sins. But of course, this distinction is unbiblical. All sins deserve God's eternal punishment. All sins are a violation of his holy law, deserving his eternal punishment. And Christ dealt with all of our sins. Uh, purgatory is also built on the Roman doctrine of justification. But if Christ's passive and active obedience are sufficient, then purgatory is unnecessary. If Jesus did everything necessary to save us, then we don't need to be further punished. And of course, Scripture says nothing about believers suffering after death. As I read earlier, all of those passages say that at our death, we will be blessed, we will be with Christ, we won't suffer. 
If anyone needed purgatory, it would have been the thief on the cross, but he passed immediately into glory, into paradise with Jesus. And so purgatory um, is just unbiblical. And then soul sleep. Some Christians have argued that there is no intermediate heaven or hell and that believers and unbelievers simply sleep until Christ's return. But this is obviously contradicted by the many passages that speak of blessing for believers after death or being with the Lord after death. Um, Or those passages in Revelation where we see the spirits of the saints in heaven crying out to God. So soul sleep does not fit. Last, reincarnation. Many different religions teach that after a person dies, the soul is reincarnated into another body, whether animal or human. Hinduism and Buddhism, of course, teach this. Plato even taught a form of reincarnation, I guess arguably. Uh, Some mystic Jewish and even Christian groups teach reincarnation, like Kabbalah, um, and some Christian Eastern mixes. But of course, reincarnation is contradicted by the same scriptures that contradict soul sleep. If we are with Christ after death, then we are not in this endless cycle of reincarnation. And then very clearly, Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we don't die multiple times. It's just doesn't work. And for a quick conclusion and application, now that we have considered the whole order of salvation, we can come to a new appreciation for God's work of redemption. Jesus fully purchased our redemption and his life, death, and resurrection, and after he ascended into heaven, he poured out his Holy Spirit to apply this redemption to us. The Holy Spirit effectually called us, bringing us to faith and uniting us to Christ We are justified, adopted, sanctified, and we will persevere and be glorified by receiving and resting on Christ alone. In other words, by faith alone. It is so important to get the order of salvation right because if justification comes after sanctification and perseverance, then our standing before God depends on us. But in the biblical order, our righteous standing before God and being accepted by him doesn't depend on our works. Our works flow from our being accepted by God and as gratitude for our salvation. And God keeps us so that we will persevere in faith and good works until the end. And so if God elected you, if he gave you faith, if he justified you, adopted you, and sanctified you, he will preserve you and glorify you. That means nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you can't lose salvation or finally apostatize because it never depended on you to begin with. And so if we are careful to get the order of salvation right, we can exclaim with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our lesson. That's our series on the order of salvation. I don't think we have time for questions. So please, if you have questions, come to me afterward and ask. If you have questions about the whole series that we went over, um, just come approach me and ask questions, or you can email me. My email's in the bulletin. Thanks for hanging in there.